Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, let's get into our 10th week, believe it or not, 10 weeks. So let's, uh, let's pray. We've got a few weeks left in our series, and hopefully it's been profitable. It'll be helpful, I trust, tonight. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you and to ask you things that you specifically tell us to ask for, to ask primarily and foundationally for your spirit, for him to work in our hearts and our lives, for him to have free reign in our thinking, for our perspective on you and ourselves to be rightly adjusted, particularly on this topic tonight. We need that adjustment. We need to clearly think about who we are, about who you are, about the issues that become such uh, fodder for the vitriol against you, the things that our critics say and the critics ultimately of you say that have caused such consternation among so many Christians for so many generations, but now in particular the hubris, the pride, the arrogance with which people are casting their accusations against you. I pray that we would have a response that is good, a response that's cogent, a response that is persuasive. Even this week as I've listened to people that just do not want to grapple with the reasons that we have for the hope that's in us, I pray we would still do our very best to present something that if a onlooker, if a spectator were to hear it, they would be just persuaded, not only with what we say, but even how we say it with gentleness and respect. So give us the tools to think through these things. Thank you for your spirits washing of our sin and our lives, making us acceptable to you. We are grateful ultimately for that kind of grace that you've shown toward us. And we pray that many would experience that grace and have that grace be a reality for them because of our evangelism in their lives. So prepare us for that through tonight's lecture in Jesus name. Amen. I want to talk tonight about the problem of evil, which is a big, long lasting and emotional argument against Christian theism. It is an argument against theism in general, that there is a God, but particularly us as we speak so highly of God's love and God's grace. And if we are genuinely Christians, we speak so highly of God, his power, his greatness. And so to speak of a great God and to know that people will simply look at suffering and evil in this world and say, well, of course your God is not great because of the things that we experience in this world. We better have a a good, well-reasoned response to that. I put problem in quotes because, of course, God does all things well. It's a problem for us on the receiving end of so much of what seems to be an comfortable reactions, the circumstances of life that we don't like. But in God's economy, of course, ultimately it is not a problem. It is part of God's good and gracious plan. But the argument against Christian theism goes like this, simply that evil exists, that there is evil in this world. And I don't think, unless you're a Christian scientist, you would dispute that. There are other religious systems that do. It's not an illusion. It's a reality. And that is that there is something less than what ought to be. And we'll try to define that later as we think through the problem of what we're talking about. But at least in terms of the argument and how it's laid out, that there evil does exist, that there is sin, that there's a problem usually defined as things that I don't like, things that are uh, uncomfortable, things that make uh, pain for my life. And that God, and here's how we pontificate about God, that God shouldn't let evil exist. If God is the kind of God we hope him to be, then he would not be allowing this evil slash suffering. And maybe in our day, we should say, as I put in the first point, it's a problem of suffering and evil. Certainly the concern is that we're not happy with it. It's painful for us either to consider or to be on the receiving end to experience it. Therefore, our God must be deficient. 
If there is a God, he's a God, as many have said, as they've said to me in several instances, I would not want to worship your God. I would not want to be a part of who your God is. I don't want to serve your God if your God is a God who lets evil and suffering exist. And the deficiencies, as it's classically posited, and it has been this way for centuries, that your God must be deficient in one or more of these ways. Your God doesn't know. He doesn't know that all this suffering and evil is taking place in this world. And of course, our word for that that we've at least used as a placeholder for this set of attributes within God's character is that we surmise or, or summarize rather the attribute of God as being omniscient. He has all knowledge. And so we would say he's omniscient and they would say, well, he can't be omniscient because he shouldn't let evil exist. And if it does exist, then of course, maybe it is that he doesn't know about it. Number two, it could be that he can't stop it. God is in some way powerless to stop what's going on. Of course, because the second point is they think it should stop and that God should stop it. God shouldn't have allowed it in the first place. And if your God has set things up that have kind of gotten out of control, he's like the mad scientist that's created Frankenstein. And because he can't put it to an end, he is as a lot of the science fiction movies will depict. He is maybe the creator, but he's not potent to solve the problem that has been created by his creation. Or lastly, maybe he doesn't care. And this is becoming an increasingly popular way to frame this, that God is a God who is bad. Somehow he's malevolent. Somehow he is not a good God because he doesn't care. He's passive in the light of all this. And if you're passive in the light of suffering, you must be you must be bad. You're not good. You're not certainly not loving if love is the well-being or the concern for the well-being of other people. If you really have a concern for the well-being of other people, bad things in this world would not happen. So that is how it's been classically posited. We need to deal with that. Christians, every Christian have a, should have a response to it, and we need to understand at least how it's presented and in all of its forms that I've ever seen by any intelligent person. Uh, and you don't have to be all that intelligent at all to object to suffering in the world. If you're going to correlate the idea of God with that, you're going to get down to this basic concern. Your God doesn't know, your God can't stop it, or your God doesn't care, or maybe all three. All right, the modern expression of it, and I'm quoting Sam Harris now in a book, a little book called Letter uh, to a Christian Nation. He's one of the four horsemen, as they say, of the new atheism, and he is young, articulate, so they say, articulate spokesman for the new kind of atheism. As I've taught on before, atheism has moved from the shadows into the spotlight today, even though they can't seem to garner the adherence that they want. We're still primarily, even in a technologically advanced world, primarily theistic. We believe in God, though we may shape him to our own fancy. The reality is that today it is hard in certain circles in the academy, in the ivory tower of the university, to say that you believe in God, certainly a Christian God. And so you've got Sam Harris, among others, Richard Dawkins, as we've looked at before, saying you're really a fool to believe in God. At one time it was hard to not believe in God today in certain settings in the upper echelon of our society. Intellectually, it is hard for you to believe in God. So we've moved into that era. And Sam, I think, posits it well. At least he thinks as an intellectual of our day that this is how it ought to be understood. And one illustration will dismantle your theism. And this is the illustration that he gives, off quoted. Uh, Somewhere in the world, he says, a, a man has abducted a little girl. Soon he will rape, torture, and kill her. And he goes on in the ellipsis there, whether it's today or tomorrow, in hours, weeks, months. Eventually he's going to kill and rape this girl and torture her. This girl's parents believe, as you do, as he addresses a Christian nation, as you believe, that an all-powerful, all-loving God is watching over them and their family. 
Are they right to believe this? Is it good that they believe this? No. The entirety of atheism is contained in this response. We should not believe in a God who would ever allow such a thing. If he's all-powerful, he can stop it. If he's all-loving and he wants to stop it and he knows about it, which is embedded in this illustration, then, of course, he would put it to an end. And that is the kind of, as others have said, sentimental, emotional response to God in light of all the suffering that they see in the headlines or experience themselves. And this, they would say, is the ultimate expression of that injustice, that inequity. It's not right. Here's a little girl being raped by some sweaty, hairy, perverted adult, and that is wrong. And because it's wrong and so egregious, you can't have a good God sitting on the sidelines watching over. There's the omniscient part. People like that, you shouldn't believe in that God. Matter of fact, it's immoral for you, as he would say. It's egregious for you to believe in that God, and our nation needs to be purged of that kind of thinking, the thinking that there is a God in light of all this evil. A couple of things. When the Christians respond to this, and it's a good word to know, as we often talk about uh, when we get to this level of thinking through God and who he is and the world and its problems, whether we're talking about our martiology, our study of sin, or theology proper, our study of God, it's a good word to have in our back pocket to understand this for the sake of at least research and reading books or finding the topic under this heading. It's the word theodicy. Theodicy. When the Christian responds to this, they are doing this. It's a branch of theology called theodicy. And everyone has dealt with this, not just Christian theologians, but of course, Jewish theologians and even Islamic or anyone who believes in God, particularly those three monotheistic religions are trying to respond to this. This comes from Greek, of course, as many of our words do for theology. Theos means God. That's the first part, which I know you know from theology. And the second part of that word, this compound word, DK. DK is the word justice. And so a couple ways that this is defined, but Webster's Dictionary defines it as the vindication of God's justice in allowing evil. Why is this evil here? How does God allow this? And the charge is it shouldn't happen. As Sam Harris has emotionally presented it, you guys should not be believing in an all-powerful, all-loving God who oversees people and allows these kinds of things to take place. Well, this will certainly require a practice of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which is the core of what we look to and find the word apologetics in, and that is be ready to make a defense, that phrase, to make a defense, to get this charge, apologia, off of our back. That's the practice and the work of theodicy. If anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, and everyone eventually will, probably no one in this room has been active in evangelism that hasn't been hit with this question, how in the world is God going to allow suffering and evil in the world? It's a constant, uh, it's a constant concern of every generation. So we've got to be able to respond to this. As Sam Harris enlists the word here in his book on page 52, this is the age-old problem of theodicy. Of course, we should consider it solved. In his mind, the modern intellectual should consider the whole problem solved. It's a problem that, that's in his words, it's such a problem without the quotations that it can't be solved, at least for the theist, but it's solved for the atheist. If God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities or he does not care to. Therefore, um, it's either impotent, he's impotent, or evil. And so that's what we're left with. And so that's what we're dealing with, and that's what we're trying to respond to for the rest of our time together. I know that this may be a more difficult section to think through, and I don't want you to listen to part of it and then just check out mentally. You need to follow this. It may sound to you like, why are we wasting time on this? It sounds too philosophical, but it's a very important for us, and it makes perfect sense the more you think about it, that the evil that is so much of 
concern for the critic against Christianity is considering evil a problem. And that is, that's a question we need to, to try and think through. Here's what the charge assumes. And, and that is that there is something wrong with being bad. And, and I don't mean to be simplistic about this, but let's think this through, okay? That we know that there are people that are charging Christians against believing in God as an all-good, all-knowing, all-loving God. All those things they think are good things. And when, in other words, that there would be someone that is loving and someone that is good, and they have definitions for that intuitively. But I really want to ask if this is just all about our feelings. In other words, why is evil a problem in the first place? Um, In other words, take the illustration of Sam Harris. What is wrong with rape? What is wrong with rape? Someone wants to do it. Someone feels the urge to do it. It would be somewhat satisfactory, at least for the time, to engage in it. Why is the little girl enlisted in this illustration and not some old lady or some other, some prison cellmate? Why do we pick that person? And what's the difference between that little girl and anyone else in our society? Why isn't the gratification or the satisfaction or the pleasure of the rapist, the good that we should support? Why don't you want to support the rapist in this illustration? You, I assume, are willing to, most of you in the room at least, to see a um, healthy steer killed so that you can have steak. You're eating steak and, and, and hamburgers, and you seem to be okay with that. You didn't shed any tears over that. Why can't this little girl be like that to this man? What's the problem with her being a, an avenue through which this man's sexual appetites are satisfied? What's wrong with raising a young girl for the purpose of being the object of rape for a rapist, just like we would raise chickens to have your Chick-fil-A sandwiches tonight? Why not have a bunch of young girls raised for that purpose? Why shouldn't the parents recognize someone has a need and a desire, biological urge? My daughter should be useful to him to solve that problem. Let's recognize that as a great donation for the satisfaction of this other person. What really is wrong with this act? The other one that's often used in this book and other books, Sam Harris is just representative of a lot of uh, argumentation through the centuries, of genocide. It's always an issue of genocide. They, they point to Nazi Germany, and that's wrong, or Rwanda, or wherever it might be that people are seeing people murdered and killed. What's the problem with that? Uh, it's always a heavy statement, apparently, to hear that the Nazis killed six million Jews. You know, what, what's the problem? Why is six million any problem? Why not 600? Is 600 okay? Or is six, 60 million? Is that, would that be worse? Um, what is the problem? Why is it bad? Uh, is it bad because it hurts? Um, well, it doesn't hurt you. It shouldn't hurt you if a little girl was raped in San Bernardino. It doesn't, it doesn't affect you. It affects you here. You're not comfortable with that. Or maybe you have some kind of loyalty to the team of whatever it was that you are a part of mentally regarding the people that were killed in a genocide. Um, is it bad that they're killed? I mean, isn't that more food for you on the planet? Wouldn't it be better to have a less crowded, you know, freeway for you to drive on if a bunch of people were killed in South Orange County? Yeah. Can I emotionally identify with different people in the equation in any scenario presented to me as morally egregious? Why can't I just say it's, a, it's not a problem? Why do I think it is a problem? Well, I'm going to take it down to this level when you're talking about the Sam Harris's or the Dennis or the, or the Dawkins of life. This is something they just don't like. I don't like it. 
It doesn't seem to sit well with me. And that really is the final arbiter of everything they're dismissing as immoral. If it's something against me, if you stole my stuff, I don't like that because I have less enjoyment of my stuff. But if you tell me the little girl got raped in San Bernardino, I don't like that because I don't like the thought of that. It doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't feel good, uh, whether that is rape or the uh, genocide of um, an entire group of people. Um, That, to me, is a good place to start. I know it's uncomfortable for me to say all that because you, I hope, as a theist, think, well, those things are wrong and they're objectively wrong and they're wrong because ultimately, as David would say, against you and you only have I sinned and you have a concern about God. But you also are part of the human race and have a conscience and think, well, that's wrong because it's just wrong. As Romans 2 says, you would say, well, I know in my conscience what is wrong and I know that's wrong, even though if it never affects me. Just like you don't really think twice about the old people I could quote statistically that died in nursing homes today across the country. You don't care. And to you, it's not a moral wrong. And yet, if you love that person, it was your spouse, it would be wrong and you would hate it. You might even start to think about objective wrong, but you seem to be okay unless you're not okay. And if you decide to not be okay with it, it's important for us to recognize that the assumption is there that there is a problem with wrong. And you've got to come up with a reason why it's a problem for wrong. Uh, If there's no objective, external, superior reason you can default to, to say this is wrong because I know it's in a column of wrong, it's objectively wrong, then I think you have to recognize that you are just battling one person's opinion against another. As Oliver Wendell Holmes said, you like sugar in your coffee and another person doesn't. What does it matter? Well, it matters because I think it should matter. You shouldn't stick needles in infants' eyes in the nursery. And and you would say that's wrong because you think, well, I don't think anyone should suffer. And the reality is, why do you think that's wrong? What is your objective criteria for saying that's wrong? And I think that's an important place for us to start. These people that are so emotionally and sentimentally involved in dismissing theism because the things that they don't like about what God allows to them is egregious, I'm saying, where do you get the sense of what is egregious? What is right? What is good? What is moral? And if you get to decide that, Sam Harris, then maybe I get to decide that, or maybe the guy in San Bernardino who rapes a little child gets to decide that, but you're saying no. And if it's just, well, let's take a poll and see what everyone thinks, then we understand this, that if you go back in a time machine or go to another place in the globe, you're going to come to a lot of things in your own experience in time travel and geographic travel to get to the conclusion that the group doesn't think the way that I think. As the Supreme Court Justice once said in his famous writings about morality, I guess a right is anything the group decides to defend. That's what a right is. But see, theism would say right is something that is granted by God and it's inherent in who you are as a human being. Those are objective things. Those are things that sit outside of you. But in reality, Sam Harris or anyone else who's going to claim something is wrong with God allowing evil has to get to the place of saying it's, it's, it's evil because it's objectively wrong. Why do you have a problem with evil? And if you simply defer to your own preferences, I think at least you need to recognize that those are preferences. They're your preferences. And you may say, well, a lot of people have my preferences. A lot of people have my preference about not liking coffee. But it doesn't make it right or wrong. And as Schaefer said, this is, and Nancy Percy so well brought into the vernacular for a new generation, this is the two-story division between truth in people's minds. There's a truth that's objective and there's a truth that's subjective. But even for people that claim a truth that's objective, they have to claim that it's objective for a particular reason. 
and, and the naturalist has no deference. There's no place to hang that hat. And they always get angry at you when you say that to them because they say, well, you're saying as an atheist, I can't be moral. No one's saying that. You can decide on a group of rules for yourself like old men should not be raping little girls. And you can say, well, that's what I think everyone should do. And you can be moral, even from a Christian perspective, by choosing that. But you're choosing that. That's a preference. It's not objectively true, nor is it objectively moral or immoral to do anything in the world. I mean, you are nothing more than a bunch of atoms that are clanking into each other in this body of bones, as it's sometimes put, and you just do what you want. Your senses and your reactions to things are just based on the chemical soup of who you are, and it really means nothing, and there is no meaning in your objective morality. And that's the kind of, as we've talked about before, the abject loss of purpose and meaning or anything outside of ourselves, which our society is, I think, running into and moving toward, and we're going to have an increasing debate on our hands about what is objectively good and what is objectively bad, and all we're trying to claim as Christians is there is an objective bad. So I just want to say the charge against God is based on something that people are saying is objectively wrong, even though in reality you need to point out that it's not objectively wrong, it's wrong to you. It wasn't wrong to Hitler to murder Jews and black people. That wasn't wrong to him, nor was it wrong to those in most cases that carried it out. So it's important for us to realize that you're making a charge while borrowing from something that we as Christians say comes from Christian theism, and that is that there's an objective rule maker. You're saying there is no rule maker, that everyone is a rule maker. Well, who gets to make the rules for other people? Well, you're making rules for other people by saying that you shouldn't rape a little child. Why not? Why don't you rape old people? Then we can't do that either. Well, why is rape wrong to start with? All of these things, I think, are hanging in midair, as others have rightly said. It is what we've dealt with, at least touched on, and that is the problem of relativism, that you have nowhere to hang your hat in terms of what's right or wrong. Why evil is assumed to be the problem, primarily because people don't like whatever it is that they're hearing about. So, ought to be, all I'm telling you, is requiring a higher standard. Ought to be requires a, a higher standard. It ought not be that children are raped. It ought not be that needles are stuck into babies' eyeballs. It ought not be. All of those ought not be's. It ought not be that people are sent to concentration camps and systematically killed. It ought not be that people are exterminated because of their ethnic background. It ought not be. You're saying those things, but you have to have an exterior standard to them. I talk about Sam Harris's little book, Letter to a Christian Nation. Doug Wilson, who's a pithy author, wrote a response in his book, which is available for free online, which is nice, called A Letter from a Christian Citizen. And in his response, uh, I like the way he puts it, as he often does in very terse, pithy ways. He said, atheism not only casts doubts upon the idea of benevolent God, but it also destroys the very concept of benevolence itself. That's good. When you reject the triune God, something objective, something sovereign, something supreme, something authoritative, something to whom, someone to whom we must give an account, and you do it in the name of benevolence, we need goodness in the world. We shouldn't have bad rapists in the world. Well, then I want to know what this all authoritative benevolence actually is by your accounting. Where do you get it? Where does it come from? What is it? Now, they're going to be tired of hearing this, and they are starting to hear it a lot from Christians these days, but it is the right question. And they might come up with ways to, in their anger, shout out responses to you. But in reality, there's no good answer for it. There is no good answer and there's no way to justify your morality outside of yourself. You can state things like suffering. We shouldn't have suffering. Well, you okay, you can decide that. You can decide a lot of things about a lot of things, but you're going to have to come up with a set of rules that you make for yourself. And eventually, if everyone lives by that, you're going to have chaos. As it says in the Bible, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is what we had 
not only in the book of Judges, but through a lot of periods of history. And you can group together and have 15 people that do the right thing or 150 people in some street gang, and they get to decide what they choose to affirm and what they choose to fight against. I should quote more from this book. Helpful. Many atheists have squarely faced the consequences of what they say they believe, but you do not begin to approach this, Wilson says to Harris. And this is why your question to Christians is sad more than anything else. Do you have the courage to admit the obvious, they say, Sam Harris says. And he quotes Holmes. Holmes, he said, he knew what morality was given the premise. Preferences regarding the morality were just that. They were just preferences. They are more or less arbitrary. And he was the Supreme Court justice, you might remember, back in the day. Settle in your mind without fragments of this atheistic sacrimony, emotional detritus of a leftover previous Christian era. You're borrowing from Christianity to even have this indignation. He says, let Holmes spell it out. Your preference is, is your truth. Or try it out. Truth is the majority view of a nation that can lick all the other nations, which he said in his book, which I've read external from Wilson. And rights are what a given crowd will fight for, as I quoted earlier. If the material universe is what you claim, Wilson says to Harris, then you need to embrace the ramifications of what you claim. The wiping out of a nation or a city does not have the significance that you unsuccessfully try to create for it. As Holmes said, I doubt if a shutter would go through the spheres if a whole ant heap was kerosene. Your ideas are nothing more than this curious kind of phenomenon in the chemical vat of your brain, of what you call your brain. And Holmes points out the comparative value of one part of your body over another. I wonder if cosmically an idea is any more important than your bowels. Now, even Holmes was fully consistent with his premise because if that's what he thought were correct, if that's what he thought was correct, then all thoughts on the same level are on the same level of bowel movement. Ultimately, there's no distinction. It would include both the particular thought of his, to which he gives full liberty to ignore. Anyway, it goes on. What a great set of quotations. Once you stop swaddling in the reality of the world, suffering and religious fantasies, you will feel your bones just how precious life is. That's what Sam Harris says. And indeed, how unfortunate that it is the millions of human beings that suffer the harrowing abridgments of their happiness for no good reasons at all. Then Wilson responds, but there have been any clear-sighted atheists who have preceded you who felt nothing short of this kind of, or nothing of this kind of moving and, and abhorrence in their bones. And they can explain to you clearly why. There's nothing in the sky above us. Then certain things follow. Your sentimental atheism is simply a hodgepodge of leftover Christianity. A lot of philosophical talk, but the reality is that we, if you think hard about it, think long enough about it, there is no reason for you to affirm a morality that should go outside of yourself. And even affirming your own morality is so arbitrary, you might as well just not affirm anything or affirm whatever you want. But certainly don't wag your finger at anyone else for doing the same if it's not consistent with yourself. Ought to be. The ought to be's that go outside of yourself demand some kind of higher standard. And as others have said, I think Frank Turek in his book and Norm Geisler in his book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, point this out well. You borrow from Christian theism to try and make your claims about so many things, including the charge that God is not good to allow evil in this world. The definitions themselves require some kind of objective truth. Here are the biblical assertions. And let's just be clear about these. We can cover these quickly, I assume, at least the first couple. God, of course, in the Bible is an all-knowing God. He's an omniscient God. Daniel 2, 20, blessed be the name of God to whom belong all wisdom and might. The scripture would say elsewhere here, it simply says belong wisdom and might. He gives to the wise and uh, he gives to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. That's just one poetic passage. And I quote a bunch of different ones every time I try to talk about God's omniscience, but there's a good one I chose for tonight. God knows all that can be known. We're not open theists. 
in the sense that we believe that God is learning. We're not processed theologians trying to think that God is in process. We believe that God has all knowledge that can be known, both real, factual, and both uh, actual and, and potential. He knows all things. Not that I'm a middle knowledge guy, if you know what that is, but the idea of God knowing everything. He knows everything. He knows all potentialities. He knows the reality. He knows what happened. He knows what will happen. God is all knowing. By definition, that's who God is. That's who he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. And it makes perfect sense. Back to our ontological argument I think I touched on and dared to enlist in our theism lecture. God knows everything. Secondly, of course, he's all powerful. Job 42, 2, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do anything he wants. If you want to stop a little girl from being raped, he can stop that. He could obliterate the entire Third Reich. He could, he could obliterate every presser in every situation of someone being subjugated. God is a God who can do all those things. There's no doubt about that. The Bible is clear on God's attributes of omnipotence. And of course, the Bible says he's all good. Ultimately, in the end, here's the assertions. I know these don't mesh with people's minds. We'll talk more to try and help figure this out. But as Deuteronomy 32 says, God, in this case, the rock, his works are perfect and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness who is without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is a God who always does what's right. So I've got to somehow start changing my definition somewhere, even though people will claim you can't have your cake and eat it too. You're trying to claim God is good. There's stuff in the world that's not good. Trying to claim that God is powerful. There's stuff that would seem to be, and here's the assumption, that God would stop all of those things if he had the power to do it, and he knows about it. Fourthly, he's completely sovereign. We'll talk more about this as we near the end. But of course, the Bible's clear that everything is on track, including the suffering of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, thinking specifically in this passage about our salvation, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, now we get to the big picture, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He consults himself and no one else. What he wants to do is what he does. He's completely sovereign. This has been the assertion of the church until late, until we've had a lot of leaders within the church wielding a lot of authority in a lot of circles of people that are willing to buy their tripe today that have not thought through the issues and are not entirely biblical. But the church at large, at least the core of the church, who has understood biblical theology, which has been the majority of the church, at least in the converted church, they have taught this, that God is a completely sovereign God. So all of that, it seems to be, so far, bows at the feet of the accusation. Well, let's talk about a couple other things. Evil. There is a God who's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, He is all-good, and he's completely sovereign. Evil. Let's first think about this, which I think has some utility in some of our discussions. Evil is a description. I'm not about to describe evil. I'm saying evil itself. The word is a description. The word sin is a description. The word iniquity is a description. The word transgression is a description. These are descriptive words. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. You don't say, here's evil. Let me show it to you. You're going to show me someone who fits the description of evil. You can't say, here's sin. I've got it in my briefcase. You may have some sinful things in your briefcase, but that's not sin. You're describing what is there and you're trying to talk about it in terms of a moral category or moral definition. It's much like coldness or dark, darkness, cold or darkness, right? Those are the absence of things. Those are things you take, the, the, the colliding molecules of, of what we would measure as heat. You take that out of the equation. You get the cold vacuum of interplanetary space, and you say it's, it's cold. It's cold because something's gone. You say something's dark because something's absent. Something's gone. We don't have photons in the equation. So this is not something that God created. I just We need to start with that. God didn't create it. Like, here, I'm going to create this. I created an apple tree. I created a pomegranate tree. I created Adam and Eve. I, I designed the, the earlobe. Uh, and here, I'm going to make 
this thing called evil. God didn't create this thing called evil. And at some point in your evangelism, that might be helpful to point out. We're simply describing some things, some behaviors, some words, some actions, and those words are appropriate, and we believe in evil. We would say we believe in evil, but evil is not a thing. It's not a tangible, objective thing. It describes simply, and here's a good way to look at it, because you've heard the definition of sin in these terms, hamartia in the New Testament, which is to fall short. It doesn't measure up. It's what, not, it's what should not be. Things that aren't the way they ought to be, the ought to be's falling short of that is what we describe as sin. Just like the absence of photons we would describe as darkness, but darkness is not a thing. That doesn't get us out of a jam, but it does help us start to describe, or discuss rather, what we're talking about, which is a description. And of course, it's an accurate description. We're not debating that. Raping a little girl, all Christians would say, that certainly is evil. It is an action that qualifies under the descriptive of evil. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 sets this up with something so mundane. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here was this tree that was described as something, as giving you a knowledge of what the reality is of evil, something that falls short of the perfection of what God has commanded. And of course, they hadn't at this point experienced that, so they didn't know that. They didn't experientially know that, and they couldn't even objectively be able to point to something and say, well, this is something in the garden or in my universe that God has created that is evil. Everything to that point is it's repeated constantly. It's good, 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 good. And yet, here's something now that becomes the test of you living up, measuring up, or falling short of what is good. In this case, doing what your creator says, doing what the teacher says, the boss says, the one in charge. Genesis 8.21 speaks of the ubiquity of this kind of descriptive, and it's right. It's We can see this. Hopefully everyone in the room would be honest enough to look at their intentions and say, even from my youth, my heart was filled with evil things, things that did not measure up. I thought things I shouldn't thought. I, I, did, I failed to say things I should have said. I imagined things I shouldn't have imagined, and they fall short of what a human being trying to live up to God's expectation, his revealed will, and even his unrevealed will. And I say that because there are certain things we know ought to be done, even though we can't point to what Scripture says and say that was not done. We fall short of it, things that we shouldn't do. We transgress a line. Those lines are clearly demarked in the Bible, but even in our own experience, we understand when we've crossed those lines. So it's an accurate description. Our world, and there's nothing wrong with saying it the way that we say it, even though we talk about it grammatically like it's a thing, that there is evil in the world. And what we're saying is there's a lot of things we can rightly describe as falling short of God's standard. There are things that are the way they ought not be. And all Christians are going to affirm that, and we always have. We believe in that, with few exceptions. A few assertions about the creatures. And I mean in this, creatures. Every one, you can say that about angelic beings, every one, every one who is not God. So you've got two categories. You've got God, the creator, who's in charge, and you have everyone else that was created by him. And those creatures, whether they're angelic, made to be in spiritual reality, but not in physical reality, or human beings that were created spiritual, but they were created to embody an actual physical shell. We're saying all of them are, number one, moral agents. They are choice makers. They make decisions. That is something that God created them to do. Something God created them to do, unlike a rock or a tree that don't make any decisions. They're passive. We are not passive. We're active. We don't let things just happen to us, though we can describe things that way that have happened to us. There are things that we choose to make happen. There are things that we choose to do. So all of God's creatures, both angelic and human, creating these individuals makes them moral agents. They now can choose whether or not to take the fruit on the tree and they can be righteous or they can choose choose to pass on it or they can choose to eat it. And if they do, then they become those who are qualifying for the definition of evil. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, 
One of many passages I could quote to tell you, even though you may be a high Calvinist, I just want to remind you, the Bible speaks in these terms. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Here's two paths, just like in the garden. God did the same. Here's the right thing. Here's the wrong thing. Don't eat of it. Eat of everything else. Don't eat of that. You got a choice to make now. The blessing and curse is before you. Life and death is before you. Therefore, choose life. And there's a lot of benefits to that, that you and your offspring may may live. It goes on to that verse, talk about other things. But the idea is you've got a choice. You've got a decision. You can't tell a rock to make a decision. You can't tell a tree to make a decision. You make decisions as a moral agent, a choice maker. And that's a unique aspect of humanity, unique aspect of angelic beings. So creatures, angelic and human, are moral agents. Number two, they can make choices that bring suffering. And suffering is usually the touchstone. It's the core of what people would say, well, that's evil. Cause suffering. That little girl's innocence was taken away, as they might say. She's suffered. She's been stolen some aspects of her life. And she's been subjected and humiliated and shamed in that rape. And so we would say the choices of moral creatures can bring suffering. And we don't get out of the fourth chapter of Genesis before we start to see this. Here is the Cain and Abel story where God comes to Cain and says, listen, I know you're jealous and envious, and I know you're getting frustrated at your brother. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Again, there is the idea of Deuteronomy, choose to do the right thing. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. If you do not do well, well, here's the thing. You keep toying with this envy and and jealousy in your heart. Well, then sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. Right? But you must rule over it. You've got a choice to make, and it's going to be hard. It's like the temptation of your parents in the garden. Now, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and Abel killed him. So Abel was going to have, I don't know, who knows what, a picnic with his wife, going to go for a walk. All of those choices now were impinged upon, and maybe it was a painful death, and how long did it take for him to die? All the suffering, not just in Abel's life, but in Adam and Eve's life and probably his whole gigantic extended family that was already colonized into different groups and people and cities. You've got, you've got a thousand years to do that, by the way. Think about how many people can be born in a thousand years. You've got a lot of people here that were in pain. Pain because Abel was murdered. So those creatures make those choices and God even brings the the decision point into sharp focus and says, listen, Cain, if you do the right thing right now, you would do well. It would go well. It would be well. You'd get life and blessing. But in reality, if you give into this, you keep toying with it, sin wants to dominate you, which is personified there. And I'll grant you that. But it's a description of falling short. That falling short, that temptation to do what you want, in this case, to seek some kind of unjustified revenge on your brother is going to dominate you. And it's going to have a reverberating effect. And Cain decided to do what he wanted to do. You can say what pain was it for Adam and Eve to pick the fruit off the tree and eat it. Well, in this case, we know moral decisions sometimes and so often bring suffering in other people's lives. Just like the guy in Riverside. I'm just using Riverside. I'm sorry, Riverside. Um, The rapist in Riverside makes a choice and chooses in that case to bring in a flood of suffering in the lives of other people. All right, creatures. Let's spend the rest of our time now trying to deal with those observations and try and deal with the problem here. Let's justify justice because ultimately all this suffering that comes as a result, the warned result, the forecasted result of sinful decisions, we want to say, why would all that happen? Why would we have suffering as a result? Why in the day you eat of the fruit will it surely die? Why would there be this cascading struggle, not just in the life of the sinner, but in the life of those surrounding the sinner? 
Well, let's start with the thorniest problem. And I remember debating this in college at the University of Arizona with my philosophy professor who wrote the textbook that we were using. Professors love to do that, assign their own textbook, which I will do in the class, and I have done in the classes I teach. I understand that temptation. Natural evil. Here's the thorny issue. Why would there be plates, as I was told by an atheist, why would, why would God make plates in the earth that would be unstable, that would shake and make people's houses fall down on top of them? This is natural. No one made the decision to have those plates slip. And I say, well, wait a minute. Someone did make a decision. My theology says someone made a decision. Natural evil is not arbitrary. Bacteria, cells that are attacking our body viruses, these half-lives that associate with a host and start to wreak havoc, cancer cells that abandon, to use biblical terms about angels, abandon their natural abode and begin now to do things that would stymie the actual proper working of the cells in my body. All of those things, naturally, those you'd say, well, no one decided to have cancer, right? No one decided for the volcano to blow up and, and kill Harry Truman. I talked about in the sermon last week or whenever it was. That was a natural evil. Hurricanes, Katrina, sweeping through. That's a natural evil. So what's that all about? And my professor, I remember saying, if not in person, in the textbook, those blend together in my memory back in college. But listen, if you want to talk to me about a theistic God of the Bible, you got me as far as moral creatures go. But I lose you when you start talking about natural evil. I'm not persuaded to be a theist, he told me, or he wrote, because I look at volcanoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and typhoons and tidal waves and whatever else might be that cause suffering. They cause human suffering. And I'd say God should control that. God may stand back and say, I've created human beings with moral agency, but I mean, come on. There's no choice making in the trees, and yet a tree falls down and kills someone. And we would say, that's a natural evil. The wind blew and fell and caused suffering in a family. That's natural evil. As a whole, I'm speaking as a whole, we need to realize this. It was justly imposed. Here's what the Bible would teach us. From the very beginning, everything about the natural order, things that do not make decisions, the inanimate objects of the universe. And of course, so much of it is quote unquote living, right? It's biological. I mean, it has some kind of of life to it, whether it's the half-life of a virus or a bacteria or, you know, some kind of creature in your backyard that eats your cat, whatever it might be. The Bible says all that's justly imposed. Genesis 3.17 God says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, he was made of the fabric of the ground, you remember. And to say cursed is the ground, the stuff in the dirt now is not going to work the way it ought to. The ought to's of God in the design of creation, now he says, is not going to happen. It's going to fall short. There will be evil in the dirt. That's the idea. And that's what we call natural evil. It's not the decision of moral agents. It was the sentence decision of God saying, you moral creatures who have chosen to sin, now I'm going to give you a sinful environment. Matter of fact, you're going to live in a sinful body. And it's going to cause the thing everyone's so uptight about. The same same thing Sam Harris doesn't want. And that's pain. His ethic is simply, if it hurts, it's bad. At least in most cases, what they call gratuitous suffering. Because, of course, they have to uh, abridge their ideas of what it is to be evil. But in their ideas, it's in their thought, in their argument, it's gratuitous suffering. And so we see there's going to be gratuitous suffering. Even just normal suffering in the case of earning your paycheck. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In that case, 
an agrarian culture, as has been, and still we're the beneficiaries of an agrarian culture, it's going to be hard, and you're going to struggle, and you're going to have problems in your body. You're going to have heart attacks. You're going to have strokes. You're going to have arthritis. You're going to be bald. You're going to have all the problems it is, things you don't like. You're going to happen to you. And that, the Bible would say, is justly imposed. And by justly, I mean it is a response to God against the moral deficiency of human beings to put them in a moral container that makes no choices but has a negative effect on their lives. That's the idea. Natural evil. And the Bible would say it's justly imposed. Now, even in our starting to create just the thought about how to communicate with non-Christians, we say natural evil was the decision of God. The good news is the Bible says it's temporary. To think of a God who creates a universe that never is freed from that kind of curse, as it's put so often, the curse of Genesis 3, which is not called that in the passage, but, well, curse it is a ground because of you. I guess it is a curse, even stated that way, I suppose. But it's the just response, not a curse in an unjust way or a capricious way. Natural evil is temporary. And this should be an encouraging passage that both gives you the weight of the problem of natural evil and also the hope of even when it was done, it was done with a sense of being temporary. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, the creation, speaking now about the rocks and the trees and the tectonic plates of the world, it was subjected to futility. In other words, that's what we're talking about, evil. It's not the way it ought to be. Even the cells that say it ought to be this way, they're going to be thwarted. They're going to be frustrated. They're going to be able to do what they're supposed to do. It's going to be cursed. Creation was subject to futility, to evil. Not willingly, not because it wanted to. We're personifying the objective inanimate things, but because of him who subjected it. That's why it's the decision of God to create a world where there's earthquakes and create a world where there is influenza and to create a world where there are trees that fall down in indiscriminate ways, it seems. Of course, we know every molecule of the universe is under God's control. More on that in a minute. Here's some great words, two words that come next. In hope. In other words, the point is all of this is temporary. He did this in hope that the creation itself will be set free. That's the hope. One day it will not be in that bondage. It'll be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Because that's been the promise in the passage and throughout Paul's writings and and, and his preaching, I'm sure. And that is that there's going to be a fix for all of this. All the problems and the pain and the things that you see are going to be reversed, including natural evil. I like about this passage is that even within the moment of its cursing, And again, we're personifying God as human beings and trapping him in time, which of course he's not. But in the curse itself, at that moment, it was done in hope that, hey, this is temporary. All the things that go wrong are temporary in the fabric of the universe, in the temporary evil of volcanoes and earthquakes and typhoons and trees falling on people. Temporary. Societal evil. These are things like Abel being killed by Cain, like your daughter being raped by a pervert in Riverside. The idea is that these are societal impact This is a societal impact on other people. Just like we saw with sin crouching at the door, as it's personified in Genesis chapter 4, God is going to say, okay, make the choice. Choices are honored among the moral agents of God. That's how God has done it. He says, for instance, here's the plan. Don't kill your brother. Do well and uh, you'll be fine. Fight this thing. Lift up your countenance, he says to Cain. Galatians 5.14 says, listen, here's the rules. The law is fulfilled in one word. You don't even need a lot of detailed words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, that's a choice you make. Watch out. You know what's coming next. You're going to be consumed by one another. Now, again, that's an analogy. They're not cannibals in the churches of Galatia. But the idea is you've got a choice to make, and those choices will come with consequences, and those consequences are going to be honored. 
the choices are going to be honored. And that is, as C.S. Lewis points out, and it's a good way to think about it, is a dignity given to everyone, including the perverts and the criminals and the thieves and the muggers. There's a dignity that God grants them by saying, I will honor your decisions. And what will come with that is consequences. Consequences of pain and suffering like a church being, parabolically put, it's an analogy, consume. Your churches are going to be a mess if you choose to bite and devour instead of love one another. You're going to suffer consequences if you eat of the fruit of the garden. You will not do well. You're going to have a lot of bad things happen if you choose to do wrong, whether it's Cain or the people in Moses' day. There are consequences that God honors with appropriate responses. You could look at that at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve in the garden or people in churches like today or in the churches of Galatia the first century. Societal evil. And the reason it works this way is because of another thing we need to always remember, which parallels number two in letter A. And that is that there's this period of time where these choices are honored even when they're bad choices. Justice is postponed. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Are they repenting? Not the guy in Riverside in our analogy tonight. Sam Harris's rapist is not repenting. He's not choosing to do what is right and choosing life and the benefits and blessings that go with that. Well, he commands them to. Why? Because if you don't, there'll be consequences, not only in this life, but in the next. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed, which is a very important thing. As Jesus said, he's assumed unto himself, the Son, he's been given and granted by the Father, the authority to judge people, having shared in human temptation. He's in a perfect position to be that judge, the arbiter of every decision. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ is going to be the arbiter in a final day of justice. And the justice begins a time when there will be no more sin. And I, I wish I had time for this, but I purposely left it out. And I will refer you, speaking of the professors that always assign their books. I wrote an article, which is a chapter in my book, 10 Things, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the I just really haven't seen much written on this one chapter. Probably one of the hardest for me to put together in my own thinking. I couldn't find even a sermon I'd preached on the topic. And that was the myth or the mistake, as I worded it, that you might sin your way out of heaven. And I think that's a chapter I would assign you to read. I'll give it to you. You don't need to buy the book. But why wouldn't you buy the book? You have it. Good. Buy a copy for your friends. That chapter has to maintain this, the dignity of choice makers. We have to maintain that. And we have to understand why it is, even in the modern era, this particular time period, why we don't have angels still falling. Why will there be no one falling out of heaven? They fell out of heaven initially. Adam and Eve fell out of the garden. And so that chapter, I think, is provocative and maybe helpful. And since I know, as someone exposed to a lot of Christian material, there's not a ton written on this topic. And I try to write all my books in a very user-friendly way, to use an old phrase. I uh, would recommend that to you because I think it's germane to what we're talking about, that we don't have time to get into that. Societal evil. There will be a time when there will be no more decisions to not do what is right. Will we lose the dignity of decision makers? No, we won't. We need to think that through as I've done in that chapter. All right, here's the big part we need to think through, okay? We think about moral choices. We think about natural evil. I've all just, I've just said God imposed it and God has allowed it. God imposed the penalty as a response to sinful decisions and those sinful decisions bring suffering and all of those things are allowed by God. And I think, well, how do we deal with that? Well, one thing we do in modern apologetics, and I say modern, not in a good sense, but the average person today would try to sidestep God's sovereignty. God is not responsible. God would not do that. So I would say this, be careful compass apologist, to never compromise on God's sovereignty. And by that, I mean his oversight of all things. 
him working everything out after the counsel of his will. And again, I'm not trying to talk about my books tonight, but I wrote an entire book on that that you need to go buy five copies of. I'm kidding. Lifelines for Tough Times. That was a theodicy for the average person, which when my daughter was diagnosed 17 years ago with spina bifida and hydrocephalus prenatally as a pastor, and people would say, why would God allow that? Why would that happen? The first thing most people said is God didn't do that. And so I want to make sure in my mind, if I believe in God's sovereignty, because the Bible teaches God's sovereignty, I never want to compromise on God's sovereignty. God did do that. Oh, well, God doesn't do bad things. Okay. So we need to think that through first by affirming God's sovereignty and the extent to which it goes in the Bible. So let's look at a few things here. Amos chapter three, verse six. Is a trumpet blown in a city? Why would they do that? They do that as a way of alarm. It's like in school when the bell goes off, the fire drill. Is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Well, they're afraid because the armies are coming. And then he steps back and says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And that's a rhetorical question. In Amos' day, this is a prophet to the north, the northern tribes, the Assyrians were the threat. When the Assyrians come and you blow the trumpet in the city, everyone's going to be afraid. And then you say, wow, why is this happening? You can point to a lot of things in the northern tribes of Israel in the 8th century BC. But you're going to say eventually it's part of God's plan. God has done it. The Bible has no problem assigning God with the responsibility and oversight of what happens in his universe. And we need to not be afraid of that either. If you're afraid of that or you sidestep that, you've employed an unbiblical apologetic. You cannot say that. You cannot say, as because we went public with this early on before my daughter was born, you know, I had all these people trying to tell me this is, I don't know, God was busy when my kid was being formed in the womb and messed up because he didn't, he wasn't watching it closely. I mean, I'm just being facetious the way I'm saying it, but they say that was a mistake, a mistake in the sense that God had nothing to do with that. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Now, speaking about the prophets like Amos in the northern tribes or Jeremiah in the southern tribes who writes Lamentations, if the prophet comes in and says the Assyrians are going to destroy the nation or the Babylonians are going to destroy Judah, who says that thing and it happens unless the Lord has done it? He's commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? When I have a healthy baby, I praise God for it. When I have a baby with a congenital birth defect that's life-threatening, the Bible says, I don't then say God had nothing to do with that. See, I have to recognize there's a connection between all things in the universe and God's oversight. Now, God is going to step back from a lot of things, and we can talk about this. When he talks about the fact that he is not the, for instance, the tempter, there is a tempter, but he's not tempting you with evil. The Lord doesn't tempt anyone. He can't be tempted, and he doesn't tempt. But the reality is you cannot say, I'm being tempted. God has nothing to do with that. If it weren't for God, who could stop it? Now I'm starting to address the issue of God's power. Of course he could stop it. And if he doesn't stop it, then who's ultimately responsible? The ultimate responsibility, and we're afraid of saying God is responsible for his creation. We're saying God is responsible because if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't happen. We can't compromise on God's sovereignty. And because it's so important, I want to continue on with what the scripture says. For instance, we praise him as the morning stars did, as it says the angels did in the book of Job, when the world was created. The heavens were existed long ago. They were created out of nothing. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's how the creation starts, moving upon the face of the earth or the face of the water. The spirit moved and created all this stuff. And by means of these, the world, water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water and perished. I mean, it's just a good place to start. God creates, that's a good thing he does that. And then by that word, by means of water, not only to create the world, now he destroys the world. Who destroyed the world? God did. 
I know, as I often say, we put that as a nice, cute wallpaper in our baby's nurseries, but that was a bad scene. God was destroying the world. If you want to add some words to the wallpaper in your kid's nursery with the Noah's Ark, you can say, this is when God destroyed everyone on the planet, except for eight people. But the Bible's very clear. The word, God's word, God speaks a word and it happens. Again, he didn't speak, he didn't have a mouth, didn't have teeth, didn't have a tongue. But he purposes in his will to do something and he does it. Now you can look at it and say, well, they deserved it. Well, I'm just trying to start with, he did it, he did it. He did it by means, in this case of a flood, by water, but he did it. Second Kings 17.25, let's just get very specific. We talk about mass destruction of the world, which by the way, he promises to do again. That's where Second Peter 3 goes. He's going to destroy it again, this time with fire, not with water. Second Kings 17.25 says, they did not fear the Lord. And again, you can be looking again at the justice of all this. We'll talk about that later. But because of that, here's an example given the reason for it, God's perspective. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. When your husband gets eaten by a lion in the road, at least in this case, you can know why it was. He didn't fear the Lord, or at least the society didn't fear the Lord, and it was a spillover. We'll talk about that. But the reality is the Lord sent the lions. The Lord sent the lions, and the Lord had them eat those people. Well, if the Lord didn't want lions to eat people, we know Daniel was protected in the lion's den. We know he can shut their mouths because it says the Lord shut their, shut their mouth. So we understand this. The open mouth that killed the people in Israel in Second Kings 17, we understand is sent by God. And you can blame God for that. What does that mean? He's ultimately responsible. He's only one who, as we say, allows these things to happen. In his plan, we can say it was designed. So we're conceding something here. I think the non-Christian is going to be surprised that we're conceding. And that is that God is sovereign. And the modern apologist wants to say, no, he's not. He had nothing to do with that. Psalm 105, 16. Think about people in a famine. That's horrible. Think about the pain involved in that. Pain, it's suffering, it's evil. Psalm 105, 16. He summoned a famine. God called a famine on the land. And it broke all the supply of bread. And when I don't have bread, I'm hungry. And when I'm hungry, my stomach hurts. And then I eventually have malnutrition and I die if I am in a famine long enough. And the Bible's clear. That slow death, a little different than the drowning death of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. But we realize God is the God who summoned it. He called it. Does disaster come to a city if the Lord did not call it? Do it. Decree it. Plan it. John 9. Look at how the theology of the apostles is better than your theology, even though... You and I think our theology is better than theirs because our answer would be different than theirs. John chapter 9 is the story of the blind man. It starts this way. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now think that through. We see passages like, they didn't fear the Lord. Lions came and ate him. The Lord sent lions. We recognize there's a correlation between their sin and God is just, and they died of lions. And they're going to say, this kid is blind. That's a bad thing. The world's not designed for blind people. The world is designed for seeing people. And so this is falling short of your plan. This is, an, this is something that ought not be. The ought to ought to be that you ought to be seeing. You don't see, therefore you're falling short of that. That was not the choice of the kid to be born blind. So they're assuming something that we don't even assume today. God did that. They're assuming that. And they're saying, the weird thing is, too young to earn it himself. So... Was it God looking through the corridor of time and saying, I'm making this guy blind because I know what kind of guy he's going to be and he deserves to be blind? Or maybe he did some kind of weird prenatal sin. So I don't know. Why was he born blind? And then the second thing was maybe it's a spillover and it's not him. It's his parents. And his parents did something, made God mad. God is responding. Either way, both scenarios, God did it. Now, you know the story, and we always go rush to this, and that is, hey, Jesus said, 
not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Therefore, he doesn't deny that God did it. He says God did do it. God made this child blind, but he did it for a different reason than you think, and it's not because of the sin of the parents or the sin of the kid. That's something transformational in some people's thinking. I have a child with congenital birth defects, and people say, well, God didn't do that. I write a book and say, God did it. I'm going to give you that. God did it. God did it. It's a God thing. Just like in this passage, the question might be why God did it. And we can spend some chapters dealing with that. But let's not compromise on God's sovereignty over the evil in the world. And I guess I couldn't say it any more clearly than Exodus 4. And this is coming right from the mouth of God. Exodus 4.11. The Lord says to Moses when he's balking about talking, because he's not a very good speaker. He says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is saying, I do that. If someone's mute and can't talk, someone's deaf, can't hear, someone sees or doesn't see, I'll, I'll take credit for that. I'll take credit for the fact that that is not outside the purview of my oversight. I mean, is that not enough passages already for you to say, I cannot fudge on God's sovereignty, his oversight of all things, which by the way, is the first means of apologetics for most people in the streets when they're trying to share with their friend about the evil in the world. They go, well, you know, God had nothing to do with that. A couple things. Once you say, yes, I understand sin in the world, the suffering in the world, the rapes in Riverside. God is not outside. It's not outside the purview of God's work. To say that God designed a world in which, and even a plan in which, I stubbed my toe on the coffee table last night. You say, well, I get that. When I start talking about the rape of a child in Riverside, that's too egregious. We can't think God had anything to do with that. That's outside the, I mean, that, I can't write a book about that and say that was a God thing. Well, let's talk about humanity in general. Don't forget humanity's position. Number one, the Bible says about humanity is that we're all fallen. What does that mean? Everyone is under this sentence of sin. Everyone's participating in sin. Everyone at least who's conscious and can make decisions is making decisions to sin. I mean, this first verse you learned, I hope, on the Romans road, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, they're not what they ought to be, but we want things the way they ought to be. We want consequences the way they ought to be. Well, what about the babies? What about the boy born blind? Let me say this. Everyone is represented by Adam. Everyone is represented in Adam. Everyone, to put it in biblical terms, Romans 5, was deemed and considered fallen in Adam. Everyone is part of a fallen class, a fallen team, a fallen species, a fallen race, a fallen people because of Adam. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one that one man. Death came into the universe through one human being's decision. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all, and the parallel to this, the antecedent to this, the, the, the response to this, the contrasting parallel to this is that one act of righteousness in Christ leads to justification and life for all men. Not every last one, because we know not every last one saved. The book of Romans makes that clear, but every all men in terms of all men without distinction, not all men without exception, because that's a big point in the book of Romans. Both the Jew and Gentile have access to the gospel, the Jew first, also to the Greek. So the idea is we know that Adam and Eve represented us. Now, once you start talking about original sin, which is what we call that, the representation of humanity in Adam, everyone's going to throw a flag on that playing, oh, that's not fair. Well, here's God in his fairness deciding that these two people will represent everyone. I know you want to raise your hand and go, I'll try that. Let me go back and try that. But the reality is the trying to do what is right in the human race failed in Genesis chapter 3. And I don't know that you could have done any better at it. I don't know that you would have done any better at it. Who knows what you might have done. 
But all I'm saying is God chose that these two would represent us all. And so it is that everyone born from that time received the condemnation that came through that act. Now, the parallel is you probably wouldn't have done any better when it came to the garden. I would argue you wouldn't. But I can say this, the parallel of that imputation of guilt is paralleled by the imputation of God's gift, his righteousness to you, so that you qualify for eternal life. And I am saying this, I know you wouldn't do what Christ did. I understand that his imputation was one of grace. The imputation of Adam's sin was probably just one of clerical accuracy, just getting this thing figured out from the very beginning from a human perspective. So we're represented by Adam. That's why babies can die. That's why babies can be born blind. That's why babies can be born with spina bifida or whatever else you might see. Then you say they made no choice. They're part of a human race that has fallen. They're fallen because they're all represented by Adam. We've preached on that before. You can look up a few sermons on that if you'd like. Even the sermon on Romans chapter 5 is helpful in that regard, I think. The other thing you ought to remember in all of this is we're created. We're creatures. We're not the creator. Trying to figure out how to present this in a fresh way tonight. The thing I wanted to start with and I didn't, but rises to some attention here, is that the argument about God not being good or being what he ought to be because there's sin and suffering in the world, the argumentation, and I don't just think it's today. You can go back to the philosophers of the 17th, 18th century. It always has as its center me, us, the exaltation of the human being. And now it's reached a fever pitch in our American Western society where everyone feels autonomous and shouldn't have anything happening to them that they don't choose to happen to them. They know nothing of monarchical leadership or authority or kings anymore. Kings are impotent even in the UK. The idea of the authority structure they don't understand today. And we saw the rise of this in the Enlightenment in particular. And the idea of people saying, you know what? We deserve to have happen to us whatever we choose to have happen to us. And I should be able to do whatever doesn't measure up to some external deity's standard, and I still shouldn't get the consequences that don't live up to my standards. That kind of thinking is at the core of so much of this. And the Bible would say, remember, you're not God. And that's a helpful thing in this discussion. Romans chapter 9, verse 21, we don't like this, coming from Jeremiah's prophecy, but the recapitulation of this idea, has the potter no right over the clay? The rhetorical question, of course it does. He can make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. As I've illustrated in my book on theodicy for the popular person in uh, that Harvest House book, Lifelines for Tough Times, I talk about Rita the rat, and the rat gets exterminated in my hedge if I want to exterminate them and if I want to give it shots and clean it up and put a bow in Rita's hair and deliver it to my daughter as a as a pet and feed it and give it vitamins and care for it, you would say, okay, you might question, I mean, I guess you wouldn't question it in modern Orange County life, but you would question in other eras what kind of crazy parent I was to give so much attention and love and, 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 and affection to a rat. It's a rat. I mean, come on. But I could do it. And I don't think you would say, if you're a normal person at least, why are you showing such discrimination? Why don't you take every rat out of your back hedge and adopt them? Well, I just want to adopt one. I want to adopt two. I don't want to adopt 20. And I assure you, I got 20 rats in my in my hedge. But I called the county to try and kill them all. So that decision-making that I make as the homeowner in my home, in my hedge, as insulting as that is to human beings who feel a sense of dignity, and not just dignity, but autonomy and hubris, I think that you would say, I guess it makes sense in the disparity between you as a homeowner and authority as a human being and the rat and the vermin in your hedge. And 
I guess you got the right to show grace to whomever you want to show grace to. Well, it's even worse in the illustration that Jeremiah uses or this passage resurfaces, and that is a potter and clay. Well, that clay, he can do whatever he wants with the clay. Why? Because he's in charge of it. He can make one to be put on a shelf over the fireplace and have everyone use it as a piece of, of, of discussion about the beauty and, and the mastery of my craft as an artisan and a, and a pot maker. And I can use one as a spittoon to spit my tobacco. I don't chew tobacco. It's an illustration, but I'm thinking of something gross that you would do with it. So I can do whatever I want with the clay because I'm in charge of the clay. I bought the clay. It's my clay. I worked at it. I did whatever I want. That picture in scripture is so important when it comes to theodicy. There's no book that talks about theodicy more than Job. The whole point of Job is why in the world is Job suffering? He buried all of his children and in-laws, his daughter-in-laws, son-in-laws. Think about that. He was suffering, scraping pus off of his body with pot sheards, broken pieces of pottery. Even his wife says, you got to curse God and die. You got to shake your fist at God and say, why, 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 why? Just like you would think the Modern person who's seeking after God who gets a diagnosis of a prenatal congenital disease that's life-threatening to his child, he would say, you should say, why? And the whole point of Job is trying to address that issue. And Job starts by never accusing God with wrongdoing. Why not? He understood something about God. And in that passage, he says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that is a, that is a calibration of his thoughts being, I am a creature, he is the creator. Now, no one on your, on your block is going to think that way until God's spirit starts to prepare them for the gospel. But they've got to think that way. Everything about the gospel is grace in part because God is a God who can do whatever he wants with his creatures. If he wants to torture us all, he could do that. You may say he's not good in that regard, but that forgets the gospel, which we won't have time to deal with tonight. But the gospel is that God entered into creation and took on the pain of creation and the suffering of creation and even decided to absorb the suffering that you deserve. But at the end of Job, the Lord says, hey, fault finder. Because he goes through a bad time from time of saying the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord and not charging the Lord with wrongdoing. Well, starting in chapter 4, he starts assigning the Lord all kinds of wrongdoing. And so he comes, God does, at the end of the book and says, Hey, you want to contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered Yahweh, the Lord, and said, Behold, I am of small account. I know that I'm a creature. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The idea of the book of Job without any answers for Job. He doesn't know the scene that played out in Job 1 with Satan and this whole thing about God's glory. But he realizes at the end of the book, starting in chapter 38, God starts saying, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who I am, remember who you are. And he starts to say, I'm of no account, I'm of small account. You know what your neighbors who are accusing God of wrongdoing because they're suffering, you know what they say? I'm of large account, I'm of a big account. And the whole point of the Bible, at least in this under this heading, you're creatures. You're a lump of clay. God is God. You're not. The seraphim are not going to bow down and say to you, holy, 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 that you're the creator of all things. Two chapters later, because God doesn't let him up. I mean, he goes for another two chapters saying, let's talk about you and who you are and who I am. Job then answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things. You can do whatever you want. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what certainly was said of Job. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things that are too big, too complex, too beyond me, too inscrutable for me, too wonderful for me, that which I did not know. One of the reasons, if we try to get down into the mind of the non-Christian when we're sharing our theodicy, 
that's never going to work is if we try to concede that your thoughts about yourself are right. You're right. You shouldn't suffer. You should never have a child with a birth defect. You should never have arthritis. You should never have cancer. I mean, if I start saying I, as a dependent creature created by a God who can do whatever he wants, I want him to do whatever I want, then we have really confused categories. So common mistake number two is forgetting our or number three is forgetting our position as creatures. Number four, don't forget God's good plans. Ultimately, when it comes to the pain in this universe, a big part of it, and most of it can be put under the category of God's justice. And I say that because we can see it as a direct correlation between individual sin and suffering. And even that with a great sense of tempered mercy that God is not giving us all that we deserve. When you've got someone who says to you, I guess what Dave Ramsey popularized, and they say, how are you doing? They say, better than I deserve. That idea, right, though we can flippantly say that, is more true than any of you realize. Because as sinners, we deserve so much pain that we don't receive. And God says one day, all the suffering in the world will put God's justice on display. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, his just anger, that's not just, I mean, that's more indignation than it is capricious kicking the dog kind of anger, as I often say. What if he desired to show his wrath and make his power known in the midst of all that, has endured with much patience, let's not forget that, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if that's the case? Well, of course, this is the context of potter and clay. Great, God can express his justice. And so he does. If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And of course, he says, I speak in human terms. But by no means, of course not. God can cause all the suffering in the world he wants with a fallen humanity. That in Adam have sinned and in their lives, most of us have contributed. I say most of us, any of us that can understand that sentence, have all contributed to that. We've confirmed and compounded the problem of Adam. And we're creatures anyway. That is not the kind of apologetic most people are learning at South Orange County churches this weekend. But it's important for us to realize God has a good plan. And part of that plan is saying, I'm a just God. I respond rightly to sin. I respond rightly to a city where people don't fear me. I respond rightly by sending lions to kill them. That may not be popular, but it's true. He certainly wants to express his mercy, which he does. You say, why did he allow any of this? He allowed part of it to show an aspect of his attributes that would otherwise be hidden. And that is God is an incredibly merciful God. Romans 9, 23, in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy known, to make them known, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Why? Well, one reason is not just to express his justice and his power and his, his retribution that is completely fair and equitable. It's also to show an aspect of mercy upon people that deserve worse. For you to say, I'm better than I deserve, is something that God gets credit for, glory for, and to express that mercy in you is something positive for the goodness and glory of God. To demonstrate his love. Without sin, we certainly wouldn't have the demonstration of love that was bound up on the cross because the cross wouldn't be necessary without sin. And we wouldn't be able to see the most incredible expression of devotion to someone else's well-being by people that don't deserve it, recipients who don't deserve it. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, which is a step above righteous in biblical terminology. One might dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That kind of demonstration of love that goes beyond anything that has been known is ultimately demonstrated in the ultimate act of human history, which is Christ's death on a cross that demonstrates something that wouldn't otherwise be experienced or known. God demonstrates his justice, his power, his indignation, and righteous anger towards sin, his mercy in holding back what people deserve, and then his love in justifying and sanctifying a group of people that don't deserve it. And of course, the Bible says all of this in the end will accomplish good in us. Romans eight twenty eight. if not in us, through us. 
We know that God, for those he loves, causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So God has a purpose in individual lives. He then decides in his sovereign and perfect will to choose to enlist evil, the falling short of what ought to be, having that to be the experience of individuals to work together some plan, a plan that is bigger than them, a plan that accomplishes good. And he does that in several ways. And I have how many on that? A, B, C, D, E, F, G? F, A, B, C, D, E, F, which I will get to next time. At least that'll be a good block to put together. Here's the unsatisfying thing about this lecture. The problem people have in saying, why is the world so stinky, is asked by a bunch of skunks. And as they've often said, you may not stink as bad as the next guy, but we're all sitting around, Sam Harris including, saying, why is the world so stinky? I'm stinky according to your God's holy standard, but come on, no one's perfect. Well, no one is perfect, and your sliding scale of perfection, I understand you feel exempt from any kind of stinkiness, but you're not happy with the stinkiness in our world while the entire world, the entire conscious world, is engaging in willful acts of smelling up the planet. God is going to respond to that. But as I will close here, in summary of where I'm going with all this and these subpoints, the good in us is accomplished ultimately to bring us into a place where none of this will ever be again. And we will look back at the justice and the mercy and the love of God and say those were the things that demonstrated the greatness of God to an extent that we would never know without the suffering and evil in this world. So suffice it to summarize those few points. Let's pray. God, it is unsatisfying because all of us fancy ourselves to be much better than we are. And the critic that wants to malign you to say that none of the things in this world they don't like should ever be, our job is to go and give them a message that they're not in charge, that they're not God, and that they've fallen short of your glory, and that they really want to demonstrate something that is mind-blowing. They ought to repent and put their trust in your son to experience mercy and grace and love that they never earned or deserved and to be put in a place of righteousness, a world in which righteousness dwells, where they will never have the tears, the mourning, the death, the crying, the pain, the suffering ever again. And what a good thing that will be, all of grace, none of it earned, none of it deserved. And God, the folks that want to shake their fist at God and say, none of this should be, borrowing from Christianity definitions of good and right and justice and fairness and equity and all the rest, will be left, as many of them will, and say they will be, this is what they say, will be left on the outside of a God that they claim now they never wanted to start with. But what a sad reality that is. The God that they now don't want will be the God they desperately need then. And our job as Christians is to get them to see that need now before the day of judgment comes. So God, bring us clarity and persuasiveness and loving, gentle respect in our words to non-Christians this week to at least start to understand in their minds or have them understand what it is to our God that for the time being allows suffering and evil. Sometimes it's poignant and painful, but God, you do that in the end in a temporary fashion for your own glory and the demonstration of your own power and mercy and grace, which we're thankful to be recipients of in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.